Here he is reporting on the current session of the Washington State Legislature, Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, and among the issues, laws involving runaway minors and what should be allowed in strip clubs. What's the update, Matt? Well, um, good morning, Dave. Dave, stay 31 of 105-day session. Uh, the cutoff for new ideas of bills is February 17th, so everyone's throwing a, their darts against the wall and see what's going to stick. And one of those I thought was particularly important because it's kind of it was late in the day, and it, there's two aspects to this one, and that's changing the runaway laws for minors to protect them from their parents if they're seeking gender affirming care now that's what it's a big mouthful but what basically what it does is provides that a shelter for runaway or homeless youth does not need to contact the youth's parents if there is a quote compelling reason not to and that includes uh, someone who's seeking gender affirming care it also appropriates seven and a half million dollars for grants to help those kids get that gender-affirming care. And we're talking about hormone therapy, uh, surgical procedures here. Uh, Democratic Senator Marco Elias is the bill's sponsor. If there is a trans youth in Washington who is trying to seek these essential health care services that are vital to their long-term success and to the safety of their life, and they're not able to get support from their family to access that care, we want to create a safe uh, ability for them to access that care. And so uh, Alex Kristalski, uh, I'm going to pronounce that wrong, uh, is a mother of two kids and testified against it. Does not provide any information for how long children may remain away from their parent. And it appears to prioritize the fast tracking of any and all gender affirming care practices over returning the child to their parents. So how, what ages are we talking about here where a child could just go to a, a doctor and the doctor could operate on the child? Well, we have a law that allows someone who's uh, 13 to make that decision about their own body, uh, what can and cannot be done. Um, this basically covers people who are minors, under 18. Mm-hmm. And the rules are right now is that a shelter has to notify the parents within 72 hours. That's the rule. That's the law in the state. They have to notify the police right away. Under this law, they would still have to notify the police because they want to check a, the police want to check a database for a missing person. Um, but that rule of the 72-hour rule, notifying the parents, is wiped clean. And it's not just for kids seeking gender-affirming care. If they're running away for what's known as a compelling reason, there's no definition of what that means. The person who runs the shelter doesn't have to call the parents indefinitely. Matt, you and I were talking about this yesterday, and that monetary figure, the, the millions that would be uh, accompanying this legislation, is the state going to be a place where, where children in other states, could, could they use this uh, money and this protection as well? We Absolutely. That was what was discussed is that just like we would be a safe harbor right now for people seeking abortions, Washington State could be a safe harbor for kids crossing state lines coming here knowing that their parents won't get notified and the state will help them with their their gender affirming surgery. Now, I, I don't I mean, I know there are families that are dysfunctional and sometimes a kid needs to run away for his own safety. But kids of that age can also be, you know, notional and influenced by others. What's the safeguard against some 13-year-old making a life-changing decision for the wrong reason and the, uh, the, the doctor or the surgeon going along with it. 
Well, that's that's a whole other topic that w- this bill does not address. There were there were concerns by people who testified about people preying on kids who are at these shelters, including and I know there's a lot of good shelters, especially when I, I visited one in Everett, um, that have responsible people. But then there are other people who run what's known as host homes, and those host homes, um, sanctioned by the state do not have any kind of requirement they don't have they don't have to notify the parents for any reason that they are holding a runaway from another state or within the state all right on the subject of adult entertainment what's being considered there well, that's a total, you may have heard the story in just a few minutes ago. It is really a total reset of the adult entertainment business in the state to kind of match what's going on in other states like Idaho and Oregon. And it would basically, the big thing is, is going to allow alcohol sales. Um, right now, the most, you, the strongest drink you can get at the, at a strip club is a Coca-Cola. Uh, they do not sell alcohol there. So this, this would be all forms of alcohol. It would also prohibit the, the, establishments from charging certain fees and taking money away from the the entertainers they can still do that how the business works is that the dancers actually rent time they pay the establishment and then they get their tips and they have to give a certain percentage of the tips to the establishment Mm -hmm. uh, along with their fee so this would change that uh those laws um lexi she didn't want to give her last name says the changes will bring bring the state in line with other clubs in other states i worked in portland and new orleans unofficial meccas for dancers. They both have alcohol, nominal household and rental fees, top-notch security, and a culture that actually celebrates the entertainment of art, sensuality, and athleticism. Now, Emily Dot says alcohol sales will help the club earn more money so they won't take the money out of the dancers' tips. This will ensure that clubs have a source of income besides the dancers themselves. And that means taking away a tool that abusive clubs currently use to put pressure on dancers. We'll also put Washington on par with the majority of states where alcohol service in clubs is legal and house fees for dancers are substantially lower. Now, interesting that the dancers said they are all in favor, all the dancers that testified were in favor of this because they say that Customers who drink are less violent than those who don't. That's what Alexi told the committee. Clubs that I've worked in with no alcohol, I've also had to engage with more violent and aggressive customers than in places that do serve alcohol. Hmm, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, um, I mean, so I guess I guess the dancers know what they're talking about. They wouldn't endorse something that would make things worse for them, I assume. Matt, any idea why alcohol is not uh, served, not frequently frequenting these places? I had no idea that alcohol was never served there. You know, I I, well, I don't know the history because of of misbehavior. Sometimes when people drink, maybe (laughs) some of them uh, get less violent, but others get a little bit crazy. So what do you think about the uh, owners? So actually, Eric Forbes is the owner of Deja Vu and the Showgirls Clubs here in Seattle. He says he owns other clubs in other states where alcohol is allowed. And this is what he had to say. The ability to serve alcohol as in other states has allowed for increased flexibility and reducing costs for entertainers and maintaining high-quality facilities. However, as the currently drafted bill, this bill would significantly change the relationship between dancers and establishments. There are several items that may conflict with existing federal court agreements. So he says there's some concerns. And one other thing, it's it would require training for people, the staff of the clubs, to have security training and, uh, uh, and ways like a panic button for dancers in case they get in trouble. But down at the very bottom of the, the legislation, this is what caught my eye. 
It says adult entertainment is not indecent exposure or sexual contact for criminal laws related to indecent exposure and prostitution. That actually came up to saying, are you basically legalizing prostitution? And there was some really gray area there about what mm. what dancers can do in these clubs as it relates to prostitution. It's not indecent exposure inside what happens in the club. But then it brought up the prostitution. Big gray area there that I, I, I caught, and so I think they're going to have to figure that one out. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure this legislation is not going to legalize prostitution. No, it's not legalizing oh. it, but it's just, it was just weird language. Yeah. Uh, and so it caught my eye, and another, uh, one of the uh, lawmakers caught, caught their eye, too. And they were asked about it, and it was like, okay, we'll, we'll come back with you with a better answer. Matt Margovich covering the state legislature. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Rescue teams from all corners of the globe are racing to Turkey to help the search and recovery efforts in the earthquake zone. CBS's Ian Lee says the list includes several dozen first responders from Ukraine, not to mention elite teams from Virginia and California. Hundreds of volunteers pack Istanbul's airport, desperate to get to the disaster zone. As victims still trapped in the quake's rubble call out for help, dozens of countries around the world are answering. Aid is rolling in from Qatar and Mexico to India and Taiwan. Italian rescuers brought heavy equipment to help pull people out of the debris. German sniffer dogs hope to find them alive. This rescuer says they're keeping an eye on social media to track victims as some have posted pleas for help. Teams from the U.S. are also flying in. Virginia Task Force brought Vader for his first mission. His handler says he's ready. We train very well for it. We train often for it. Being comfortable in the rubble pile, being comfortable in loud situations. Getting the help may be the easy part. Reaching victims with roads wiped out is a massive challenge. We have to be creative in how to get to the people and how to get to them the the assistance. Ian Lee, CBS News. Seven forty-seven, and now from the Gian Ursula Show, here he is, G. Scott. So, um, we, from time to time, we do a Russell Wilson update just because. Right. And uh, now the Broncos have a new coach, Sean Payton. Why do I recognize that name? Uh, he was the head coach for the Saints. Okay. And then he stopped coaching. He sat out for a year. And now he is expected to be this great coach now that's going to come back and is going to resurrect his team. But never, in my experience of watching NFL football. Whenever there's this really high expectations, I think John Gruden. But anyway, high expectations of a head coach. It never works out like people think. But anyway, Sean Payton now is the head coach of the Denver Broncos. They paid they paid a nice little piece of money mm-hmm. and draft picks to get this coach. Okay, and a reporter asked him uh, this week. Coach yeah. uh, Russell Wilson had a, a personal coach, Jake Heaps, in the building with access who wasn't on the staff. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with that. Are, how do you feel? about um, players having their own people off the staff in the building access to players. Yeah, that's foreign to me. That, that's not going to take place here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with it, but our staff will be here, our players will be here, and that'll be it. Now, I, I am personally not... I, I was reading a little about the Russell Wilson entourage, but I don't. I, I really know nothing about it. Can you, can you set this up? Yeah, I'll set it up. Um, I, first of all, across the NFL... There's all 
types of, uh, especially those that start to, that have been in the league five plus years, six plus years of the game, there are athletes that have their own people, okay? Most of those people are outside of the building. When I say people, what do I mean by that? I mean your massage therapist. I mean your acupuncturist. I mean someone that helps you with your meal prep. And then you, of course, have your agent, your publicist, someone maybe who does your marketing. If you're in the NFL a little longer, mm-hmm. you start to make some money and you have your team. But in the, but in the team... I'm about to get to that. Okay. So that, that's outside. Yeah, okay. Sometimes... Some of your team might come to the facility. They don't interact with the other players. They don't go into the meeting rooms. And right now what's happened is, is Russell Wilson last season with the Denver Broncos, his team of people were inside of the building, whether it's someone who is helping him with massage therapist, someone who is counting his throws when he is out there on the field. Russell Wilson has a team of people. Well, last year, it was a huge point of contention considering once that leak got out, considering they weren't doing so well, everyone starts to talk about what's wrong. Let me be clear. Usually, I'm not usually defending Russell Wilson, but today I am, and here's why. I'm going to defend him because I think it is very petty what is happening, especially the way that they called out his quarterback coach by name, first and last name. I thought that that was very petty because that quarterback's coach is not the only person that is inside of that building. As a matter of fact, I would argue that of the people that Russell Wilson had on his staff in the building, I would argue that the first and last name that they brought up of the quarterback coach Mm -hmm. is in there the least. There are others that are in that group. And I think it starts to get personal when you start put mentioning first and last name. That's number one. Number two, Russell Wilson isn't the only one in the NFL that has had their personal people come inside of the building. I know that for a fact. But because Russell Wilson was not winning football games and was not playing very well, that is the point of contention, and that's what the spotlight is on. Well, victory fixes everything. Hey, but, boy, but I, don't it. But, I, but I'm trying to figure out, what, so mm. that's a common practice. How do how do other members of the team, though, feel about this if he can go sort of into his they, own they space? They, around, but they don't care. They don't care. Because, well, let's be clear, other members of the team already know the starting quarterback of every NFL franchise is the favorite son. Hello? You, you mean to tell me Aaron Rodgers doesn't have special privileges? Tom Brady doesn't have special privileges? Peyton Manning didn't have special privileges? You guys see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. The quarterback is, I'm, I'm sorry, he's the golden child. It has always been that way. When I talk about San Francisco 49ers of the past, who's the first player you think of? Joe Montana. <laughs> Steve Young, right? And so, the, again, one last thing I want to add to this, Dave. Mm-hmm. Let's just say all of this stuff that we're talking about, whatever. But Sean Payton is a new coach. And Sean Payton is going to come in in here and he's going to establish some things that's going to go on inside of that building and what they need to do. Hey, Sean Payton, why are we talking about that with the media? Why are you telling the media that this is not going to happen? And But you just said that you're unfamiliar with it. So if you're unfamiliar with it, why would you go ahead and say that this is not going to happen in the building? Wouldn't that be a good time to maybe address this with your starting quarterback? So that already lets me know 
that already, in my opinion, they're already starting off on the wrong foot. <laughs> because basically, the head coach is saying, this is my show. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. It can be your show. But you'll never see Pete Carroll address issues that happen inside of the building. In public. In public. Yeah. And if Pete Carroll were to say, now hear me out for a second. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with that. If you're unfamiliar with it, then how can you address it? You're unfamiliar with it, but yet I don't know anything about it. But yeah, that's not going to happen. So that means I can bring my vocal coach and personal stylist into the building now. Man, as long as you mention them by first and last name. (laughs) Wait, wait, you got a vocalist? You no. got you you have a stylist? Have, Doesn't need have, any of I have, that. I have neither one of those. Dave is perfect as he is. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. D- Dave, before we go, <laughs> yeah. how do you decide what you're going to wear every day? <laughs> What's next in the rack in the closet, G? As, <laughs> as if it doesn't show. <laughs> This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. As you know, there's been a proposal for a a budget for the the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. It's like a a billion dollars. And there's still a debate over how to spend this money best. There's an organization called We Heart Seattle, which I find interesting because it's, it's a collection of people from various parts of the political spectrum. One of them is Andrea Suarez. And Andrew, you you were describing this organization as a collection of uh, Democrats, progressives, Republicans, independent. What is your approach to the whole homelessness and drug problem here? Yeah, we are an apolitical organization. Uh, We've been boots on the ground for two years here in Seattle, uh, providing a platform for volunteerism to clean up our our shared spaces. We've cleared over 780,000 pounds of trash from our parks and shared spaces, picked up over 20,000 needles. And in doing that, for me, as a person that is not very civic minded or plugged into city politics at all prior, was like, we have an addiction problem in our city and in many cities across our nation, and it shouldn't be political. And I just started uh, being noisy about what I was finding. And like, for example, I was going into the needle exchange program and saying, where's the exchange part of your program? Why am I picking up all these needles in our parks? I mean, that's kind of how it all started a couple years ago. And now today we have a very strong advocacy arm which includes co-founding um, along with Michael Schellenberger and 22 other organizations across North America, um, a coalition called North America Recovers with a emphasis on recovery first, treatment first, and then make people housing ready. Well, your organization is interesting to me because Michael Schellenberger, who we've talked to before, he he thinks that progressives have uh, basically blown the whole homelessness thing. You described yourself to me as a bleeding heart liberal. So <laughs> what what makes your approach different from what we've been seeing here in Seattle? Well, I mean, I think I was uneducated. I wasn't educating myself. Um, I am, you know, grew up, uh, grew up in either San Francisco, Portland or Seattle. Those are my three cities I've lived in my whole life. Always have kind of voted the same way you know, more social services, always good, help people who are in need, good. But that seems to be failing. And I think my party is fed up, you know, in fact, we don't feel like we have a party. I think both sides don't feel like they have a party right now. And the direct action strategy of using uh, these cleanups to disrupt and question the status quo 
I just go back on my own personal experience. This isn't something I read from a Harvard business, you know, journal or medical review. And Michael Schellenberger is very well studied and well, well read and a, a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he's very data driven and I'm very, you know, boots on the ground practice driven. And together we make this incredible team and I'm happy to announce he has joined our board of directors. All right. So what do you think of the Regional Homelessness Authority and where do you how do you think this this billion dollar budget? Well, first of all, do you think they need that much money and where should where should it be spent? Well, if money was the solution, wouldn't we have solved this 20 years ago? I mean, every major city keeps getting more millions and billions of, of money. Meanwhile, we can stand up 20,000 beds in New York City for the refugees that are coming in from Ukraine with services and toilets and bathrooms and medical care and nurses. We did it then. We did it at 9-11. You know, the Salvation Army came together in Nova Scotia and helped 8,000 people get shelter overnight. A bit different when you're dealing with drug addiction. And that is what King County Regional Housing Authority doesn't address at all. We have to stand up, and I am looking forward to learning more about these CCCs, Community Crisis Centers, I think they're called, which uh, will provide some sort of 24-7 friction-free access for people to get addiction treatment and um, psychiatric care, Mm -hmm. much like the Albertans are doing. And the Albertans have reduced overdoses by 45% through their model, and we need to study their model they're holding a conference in Calgary. I hope every city leader in Seattle has purchased their ticket. Let's not reinvent a wheel. They have a working model. Go to Alberta. So you're saying this whole housing first thing is fundamentally flawed. Fundamentally flawed, should be abolished. It works for some, of course, but we're talking about what we see in our parks, our sidewalks, people who cannot care for themselves. I have family. Uh, we've you know, hospitalized for, for mental health crisis. They can't help themselves. We have, you know, if you know anything about addiction, we have to have some kind of facilitated and mandated treatment. Not saying incarceration forever. I'm saying arrest, stop the behavior, triage to treatment, mandate addiction treatment for all, and get people to a pathway of self-sufficiency so they can get a job and get a house. Would you say there, there are organizations or, or politicians who are standing in the way of doing the right thing? There, you know, we here from Seattle, we always talk about there's just no political will. I think there is a shift in the air. I'm hearing, you know, Mayor Harrell say things like we've got to break up the open air drug scenes. Yes. I'm seeing my own clients that we're serving, you know, get arrested. They're spending some time in jail. They're coming out. <clears throat> They're asking for jobs. They're asking for treatment. They realize there is a shift in Seattle and it's humane to do anything other than a a different direction. It's cruel. You know, I'm tired of seeing these folks in our parks and on our sidewalks with open scabs and feces around them and needles and drug paraphernalia and missing clothing. It's cruel to leave people in this state. Mm -hmm. But you're saying you're saying jail works because most progressives are saying jail's the problem. I mean, I was in a room full of people from all over North America for three full days, and they were recovering addicts who every case, you know, a police officer story saved my life. Mm -hmm. I was arrested. I went to jail, and my option to get out of jail was to go into treatment, inpatient and then outpatient, and it works. It saves people's lives. So let me just make sure I heard you right. You said if we did things the right way, as you recommend, 
it would be a matter of months before the tents would be gone. Correct. I believe strongly that a state of emergency like response, like we did for COVID, this is a disease of addiction harming our communities and killing people at a tune of a hundred and what, 10,000 people this last year, a year, get them off of opioids, period. Let's set up medical treatment centers now. And we've, we showed we could do it during 9-11. We've shown it during Katrina. We've shown it during COVID. Find a stadium, find some space and bring in, you know, doctors without borders, nurse practitioners, recovery ranch type style and a pathway out. And we can do it. We can do it quickly. If we treat this like the emergency, we've all declared it to be. Look at what we did with COVID. Say no more. Andrea Suarez, We Heart Seattle. Andrea, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. 48 Seattle's Morning News. We're committed to work with China where we can advance American interests and benefit the world. But make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country. And we did. So what was the message there? Was he talking to Republicans, to China, maybe even to Russia? Let's go to CBS News military analyst and retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. Who joins us live? I'm curious to know. Now, did we were we general were we genuinely surprised by that balloon? Did we not have the the uh, technology to uh, detect it sooner? And were we able to suck any information out of it while it was drifting over the country? Well, the Pentagon suggests we were able to get some information from the balloon. We'll get more, perhaps, Dave, when we recover all the particular debris now somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. How much information we gain from that, obviously, I doubt the Pentagon is going to tell us a great deal. But the kind of information I would imagine we got was what exactly were they looking for? And that also tells us what their design was. Was it to improve their missile capabilities? Were they looking at particular altitudes, et cetera? Also, there's a possibility we were able to ascertain where they were transmitting back to. And there's a possibility, I've been suggesting to me, that we could actually have fed this some false information that uh, could go back to uh, to the Chinese as well. Uh, but clearly, this is uh, you know a significant incident without question. And as you said at the top, who is Biden speaking to last night about China? Well, I think he was speaking to all those people you mentioned, the Chinese, the Republicans, American people more broadly. The uh, Pentagon also seems to be admitting, I think they called it a a domain awareness failure, that they had tracked balloons before. They had not transited the entirety of the United States. They'd come close to the coast. They'd cross the coast uh, only briefly. But it's unclear, even though this has occurred in past, they suggest three times during the Trump administration, at least once previously in the Biden administration, whether or not intelligence uh, agencies didn't pass, pass, pass that information up and whether or not Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden earlier was aware of it. This one, of course, transiting the entirety of the nation and being able to see visible with the naked eye uh, made it very, very clear what was going on. Colonel, first of all, great to talk with you, my friend. Um, Question about what they were able to transmit. Do we have an, an idea of how much information they were able to transmit? Will we be able to discover that from recovering the balloon? Is that possible? 
I think it's possible, Heather, and also monitoring it as it was transiting. But, you know, the, the minimum thing they may have been trying to ascertain was when, in fact, did our radar systems actually pick this thing up? You know, I've talked to a lot of experts on it. And it might be surprising to many, but uh, actually finding a balloon with a radar is more difficult than you might think. You'd think, well, it's very large, therefore should be able to be picked up pretty easily. But in fact, our Doppler radar systems are designed to pick up metallic objects that are moving very quickly because you, you pick up the actual trace. So they're looking for a missile that's coming in on a ballistic trajectory, which a balloon is not. Or you're looking for aircraft, which actually try to fly lower to try to get you know caught up in the ground clutter for radars. The altitude that it was coming at, 65,000, 70,000 feet, and also being non-metallic and also meaning it's moving pretty slowly, makes it more difficult. But they certainly were trying to figure out when they actually did the radars pick up. Secondly, a balloon has the advantage over even a low-Earth satellite that it can dwell at certain locations for a period of time. It's dependent on the wind, but it is somewhat steerable. And it appears, at least, that this balloon did hesitate uh, over our missile fields there around Malstrom Air Force Base in Montana and may have done so as well over Whitman, uh, Whitman Air Force Base down in Missouri, which houses the B-2 bomber. Now, Colonel, there were some earlier reports that there was a second balloon hovering over Canada. Any truth to that? And if so, where where is that balloon? You know, I, I have not heard that uh, any more information about that. There was a suggestion there was one over Latin or South America. But I think what we need to understand is this was hardly a, a one-off event. And clearly the, the Chinese have been doing this kind of activity to gain intelligence for quite some time. And it's part and parcel, frankly, of, of a bigger intelligence gathering effort that the Chinese have been doing against us for many, many years, involving obviously their satellite array, which is second only to ours, obviously involving a lot of cyber attacks to get information about American citizens. So this is just one aspect of a bigger overall intelligence gathering effort by the Chinese. Couldn't they also like drop a fungus or something as this thing is sailing over the country? I mean, I don't think I like the idea of their balloons just sailing over the country. Yeah, I don't know about anything about them dropping anything, but obviously this was very disturbing. And I would almost, you know, as an old guy, Dave, I would actually call this could be a an American Sputnik moment. I remember as a small boy going out in my yard as a kid, yeah. you know, watching this dot move across the sky. I'm probably older than you, Dave, so you'll probably remember that. Um, but uh, that was a real galvanizing effect for the whole nation. I think to some degree uh, this might be the same. This does raise the question, of course, that is, you know, <laughs> gathering a lot of steam in Washington is should the president have shot it down over Montana or Idaho or yeah. whatever? Um, and, and actually, uh, I happen to agree with what the president did. I mean, there is a possibility of debris falling and you could injure or kill Americans in the process. People don't understand shooting this thing down from talking to some of my Air Force pilot friends is a more difficult proposition than you might imagine. Again, you think, well, it's really big. It's pretty easy to do that. But frankly, an F-22 fighter's max altitude is about 58,000 feet, plus or minus. And so therefore, this balloon's at 65,000 feet or maybe even a little higher. So the F-22 that did that engagement had to actually fire, and the missile had to go up about another mile or so to actually strike the balloon. So it's a more difficult proposition. If something goes wrong and that that missile misses the balloon or malfunctions, then it's not only a problem of balloon debris falling on the United States, you've got a sidewinder missile coming down on the territory of the United States because what goes up does, in fact, come down and bring it down over the water. 
I think gives you a greater possibility because it was pretty shallow, about 50 feet of water is where that went down off the coast, of recovering the balloon, recovering the package, perhaps more intact, which will then allow us to analyze it and discover was it, in fact, you know, a weather balloon like the Chinese say, a surveillance balloon or perhaps both. CBS News military analyst, retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Dave. The violent expulsion of Chinese people from the West Coast cities in the 1880s, including Seattle and Tacoma, is a pretty dark chapter in Northwest history. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell has traced anti-Chinese discrimination back even further to a law passed by the Washington Territorial Legislature back in 1864. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, in an old thesis published back in the 1920s, I stumbled across while doing some other research. A scholar mentioned a law that created the Chinese police tax. So one of the reasons that Spokane County ceased to exist for several years back in the 1860s. It's a little complicated, but it might have been a gambit to collect more of this tax by trying to administratively fold Spokane into Stevens County. There were hundreds of Chinese working in the mining industry there. Anyway, it was that county research that led to this, the, me sort of learning about this thing for the first time. Now, stepping back a bit, the history of Chinese people in the western United States is not something we hear a lot about. You know, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, a federal law, ended Chinese immigration to this country for about 60 years. And those violent expulsions in the 1880s tended to reduce the presence of that population. For some perspective, I spoke with a Seattle man named Doug Chin, along with his twin brother, Art. He's authored a number of books about Chinese history in Washington. I was born in Seattle a long time ago, 1942. Went to school here uh, in Seattle and uh, never read anything about Chinese. I only learned about anti-Chinese stuff when my brother started doing research on it when he was a student at the University of Washington. I read one of his term papers. That's how I found out about the Chinese experience in Washington. Yeah, so it was a little remote. And what Doug Chin found out is that the first Chinese people were in Washington Territory by the 1850s. And while those anti-Chinese riots took place decades later, there was resentment and prejudice right away. And he and his brother even mentioned the Chinese police tax on the first page of their first book. They see the Chinese as unfair labor competition, tools of the capitalists, as well as other cultural factors. You know, they couldn't assimilate, you know, and uh, their anti-religion, as in the, they were filthy their intelligence would be low to whites and so forth. They, so there was cultural, ethnic, as well as economic factors that people had against the Chinese. Yeah, and Chinese people had come to California before they came to Washington Territory, and this is in the 1840s. And so it was California that passed a law in April 1862 with this title, an act to protect free white labor against competition with Chinese coolie labor and to discourage the immigration of the Chinese into the state of California. Very clear, what you see is what you get. No, no hiding the intent there in the title. Now, the California law required all Chinese men and women to pay $7.50 a quarter as what they call the Chinese police tax. That's $30 annually or the equivalent of about $500 today. I mean, that's real money. In that same year, 1862, Oregon imposed a $5 annual tax on blacks, Chinese, mulattoes, and Hawaiians. So then in 1864... Washington's territorial legislature passed a law with almost exactly the same title as California's. The whole law is almost a verbatim copy, though there are some differences. Now, for instance, in Washington Territory, the tax was $6 a quarter. It's a little less in California. I did find evidence of it being enforced in King County in 1866 with those who didn't pay being forced to help build a road. 
Now, in each county, the tax was collected by the sheriff, and the individual officer got to keep 25% of whatever he collected. What? You know, it's an inducement or incentive, right? But it I seems guess right. So. It, it seems ripe for corruption, but there was paperwork involved. I don't know of any of those actual receipts surviving. I would love to track those down. Now, the remainder of, of the 75% was split halfway between each county and the territory. Tough economic times during the Civil War here because government spending really dropped off. And this was sort of a gambit to raise money. Now, here's the real oddity. The law specifically gave Whatcom County a much higher rate of $10 per quarter. That's roughly $160 in 2021. Now, why would Watkins get to charge more, almost double, than other counties? In 1864, Bellingham, as we know it, didn't yet exist in Watkins County. Jeff Jewell at the Watkins Museum says there were two main communities there. They had Watkins and Seahome as kind of these rival two dusty towns that or rainy towns, depending on what time of the year you wanted to look at them. You know, each with, you know, maybe 750 to 1,000 inhabitants and serving almost strictly a San Francisco market. So everything was shipped out, coal and lumber. So there's a pretty strong economic connection between Whatcom County and San Francisco, maybe a cultural and political connection, too. Now, I got a lot of help with the story from the law library at Seattle University and a retired law librarian named Kelly Kunch. They shared with me evidence they found of British Columbia essentially mimicking what California was doing. You know, they would see what California did to discriminate against the Chinese and mimic it in British Columbia. So it's not a great leap to speculate that Washington Territory was doing the same and passing its own Chinese police tax, even down to copying the language. But that higher rate in Whatcom County is still something of a mystery. Um, at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Josh Soretti is an associate professor of history. The higher tax was news to him, and he theorized that it's related to Whatcom's proximity to the border. There were a number of people who would come to the states from China at that time were transiting through southern B.C. And so they would come, you know, by often from Hong Kong to Vancouver. Um, and then from Vancouver, they might cross down by land because there were often lots of opportunities due to like periodic labor shortages down here in the extraction industry. Yeah, so there wasn't a federal uh, immigration policy, so maybe this was Whatcom County taking it. I don't know how they were able to get that put into the bill to be able to collect so much more tax. Now, oddly enough, California's Chinese police tax didn't last very long. It was struck down as discriminatory by the California Supreme Court the same year it became a law. And in Washington Territory, it was repealed in 1869, and it warmed my heart to read the name of the, the law that repealed it. It was an act to repeal all police tax laws discriminating against Chinese, Mongolians, and Kanakas, or, or Hawaiians. So in 1869, lawmakers here were calling it what it was, discriminating. That's, there's something encouraging about that. That's yeah. still, you know, it's part of the history, and Doug Chin says that knowing this kind of history is where belonging comes from. If you're Chinese, you want to feel that you contributed or you belong here, that your race played an important role in developing Washington State. Otherwise, you don't feel part of it. You, you know, you're at best marginalized. You know what I mean? You got to keep this history transparent to keep learning from it. That's that's what I believe. Historian Felix Pinnell. You can hear him Wednesdays on Seattle's Morning News and all his features are at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.